0: to episode 237 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today I'm joined by Scott Blackburn to talk about his debut crime fiction novel, It Dies With You. Congratulations on your book's publication, and thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Nancy, for having me. This is my last event before the official launch, so I'm glad to be here.
0: So first off, congratulations. As I said before, publishing any book is big. But publishing your debut is huge. So, you know, you must feel great. You had some interesting stories before we start talking about the book about like uh, publishers that told or agents, excuse me, that told you, oh, you, you know, this will never get published. And of course, there's yeah, rev- living right is the best revenge. So living well is the best revenge.
1: Amen to that.
0: When I was reading It Dies With You, uh, and I read one of your tweets about how there are probably not a lot of writers from where you live in the United States, which is Western North Carolina. Am I correct?
1: I'm more central, but I, I'm and, not too far. Yeah, I'm kind of right dead between the beaches and uh, the mountains of North Carolina.
0: Um, and it put me in mind of a conversation I had with Naomi Hirahara about how she wrote her Ma series about a Japanese-American gardener. Bear with me for a second. Um, in order to share stories from her own unique perspective, which was as a Japanese-American growing up in Southern California. And so that was an eye-opening moment for me, because I realized that crime fiction is a perfect vehicle to meet different people and visit other places. So through your book, I felt as if I got a taste of that part of North Carolina and I wanted to ask you was setting the book where you live and work part of the plan from the beginning?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, the town I wrote Flint Creek is not real, but it's based on a lot of real places where, you know, kind of where I grew up and places I've visited um, just kind of that small, you know, middle of the road, middle of North, North Carolina towns. Um, so yeah, I wanted to write something that was accurate. So um like I said, I'm not in the mountains and I'm not at the coast. You know, we have a lot, we have a few big writers in, in the North Carolina mountains like Ron Rash and David joy. And then at the coast now is Wiley cash um, who mentored me in college. Um, and, but I'm kind of in the middle of all those guys. So um, yeah, I wanted to write something that was uh, that was relatable to, to my own experience. Cause I think it would come off the page as real. And I, and I hope it's done that.
0: Keeping that thought uh, as the story begins, your protagonist, Hudson Miller, has hit Mm -hmm. a rough patch, and that's putting it mildly. Although he's a prize fighter, and I should mention that you are also active in martial arts, so that's another touchstone of yours. Uh, But maybe many of the parallels between you and Hudson uh, sort of end there, because you teach English and your character is a bouncer at a bar uh, because his license to fight has been suspended. And because of that suspension, he forfeited the prize money for the fight And his job teaching boxing to kids has sort of gone by the wayside. He's broke. He's couch surfing. And then he's informed that his father, uh, that while he's not only totally estranged from, uh, he certainly had a problematic relationship with, has been shot and killed at the junkyard, or I should say the salvage yard, Miller's pull-apart that he owns. So... And not to mention all of this, that a very, very long involved sentence. Uh, The night before he was shot, uh, Hudson's dad called him and he didn't answer. So Hudson's tribulations are absolutely Job-like. So tell us about your character, aside from the (laughs) Job-like.
1: Yeah, yeah, he is is Job-like. I don't think he has any like weird sores like (laughs) on his body or anything like that, or his cattle aren't dead, but yeah, he's definitely gone through some struggles. He's just, yeah, like you said, uh, I think you said it best that he's kind of in a rough patch, but he's also kind of just an everyday man, you know, boxing happens to be his thing, but he's also not someone who's going to be fighting in Las Vegas and on TV. And so he's kind of got at the point where, you know, he's about to turn 30 years old and, you know, he he doesn't have much uh, footing in the world, especially after his uh, the one thing he does love is teaching kids boxing and fighting um, are kind of taken from him um, because of something he did. Um, not necessarily uh, on purpose, but it's something that happened and he paid the consequences for. It. So when we find him at the beginning of the novel, he's going through that. He is working at a bar and, and in college, you know, I had two or three roommates at some point or another, they were bouncers at a bar. So, you know, That's, you know, so a lot of the experiences and and characters I bring into this are, you know, I pull from people I know and places I've been. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where we find him. And then he gets that unexpected news and an unexpected call from his dad the night before he does. And we and you never find out what that was. And that's kind of uh, that was kind of the appeal of that phone call and putting it early in the book because it leaves you wondering, you know, what's what's up with that phone call.
0: So I want you to hold the thought about social media, because one of the reasons he got into trouble in the ring he reacted to someone sucker punching him essentially uh, after a fight was called and he uh it, but it it became a youtube sensation uh mm-hmm. and that that plays into uh the story later on um but back to the back to leland miller who's hudson's dad uh his murder is complicated by the fact that Leland was probably engaging in illegal activities, which doesn't surprise Hudson as much as he might have expected it to. Uh, It does change the dynamic of the investigation into his death. Uh, Hudson and Hudson's stepmom, Tammy, both feel that they're sort of getting the bums rush from the Flint Creek Police Department. And, and then element of blame the victim is seeping in. So I don't want to give too much away, but Hudson is struggling to keep the business going, the, the pick-apart business going, and uh, then another crime associated with the salvage yard is discovered, and the wheels have definitely come off the bus. I thought that was a really <laughs> great point in the novel, because you're just sort of like, what the you know uh, <laughs> you know in his efforts to run the gauntlet and move on from flint creek it, it's just sort of like what's going on so is this more job uh, or is this just the point at the end of the first act where <clears throat> you you want everybody to go oh my god
1: yeah i always wanted some sort of revelation because you know early in the novel he realizes okay that was he was tying up maybe like a gun running ring or something like that, you know, which doesn't shock him too bad because, you know, he, he could have been selling pistols to his cousin or something. You know what I mean? Like just one of those things that's like, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. You know, he kind of collected guns and he's kind of a little bit of a survivalist mentality. So he wasn't shocked by that. So I was like, I got to put something in there that's really going to uh, make the wheels come off. And so, yeah, they do make it a discovery at the yard. Uh, that, that's very eye opening. And at that point, he, he starts, you know, becoming a little more involved in the, best, in the investigation and wondering what his dad was tied into and if that was tied into his dad's murder.
0: Like many people who leave small towns, uh, Hud swore that he would never go back. And yet, to paraphrase that immortal line from Godfather Three, he keeps being pulled back. And pulling him back toward Flint Creek from Greensboro are the circumstances of his father's death and not to mention the inheritance his father has left him. And so it's a quandary that resonates. And I think it's a quandary that resonates with a lot of people because this is a journey and the journey is not going in the direction that Hudson thinks he wants it to go in.
1: You brought that up. And that was actually one of the first uh, ideas I had for writing this book is that feel of, like you said, people who have gone away from their town and you know maybe they went to college or maybe got married and moved away or something, but they didn't have the desire to go back for whatever reason. Um, I don't really feel like that about my hometown. I live 10 minutes from where I was born um, and I actually teach in my hometown. So I don't really have that, but I know plenty of people that, you know, had experiences. They, they, that were, I guess, negative with family or, or, or the people in the town or just kind of like the mindset of the town. And they and they don't want to go back. And so it's and if they do, you know, for a family reunion or, you know, lunch at grandma's house, there's just that uncomfortable feeling, um, not necessarily around grandma, but, you know, just going back into that town and remembering things from the past. And Hudson definitely has that. So, you know, from the get go, as soon as he moves back, he's uncomfortable you know and and basically he admits i've been living like a hermit you know staying in the house i don't want to go and and, and mingle and rub elbows with the locals because uh it's just not comfortable for him more more or less is because he and his dad you know had such a bad relationship but his dad loved the town the people in the in in the town you know, kind of liked his dad and you know they were all buddies it seemed like with some of the power in the town and i think that's one of the big reasons um that, that Hudson didn't want to go back, even though later on, you know, he found some redeeming qualities of the town and the people in it. But yeah, that was definitely something very important from the from the outset of this book I wanted to accomplish with uh, writing it like that.
0: And of course, you mentioned family and family is always uh, part of the journey, reconciling yourself to your family. You can't choose your blood relatives. <laughs> I, and right. uh, in, in Hudson's case, even, his stepmom, who is someone he <laughs> is very problematic. Yeah. And everybody's got one in their family. Everybody has absolutely. a family.
1: Yeah, absolutely. She was one of my favorite characters to write because uh, I, I have a friend with a with a stepmom <laughs> that's almost <laughs> just like her, even on you know, somewhat down to the description. And so I was like, Yeah, this is gonna be an easy character for me to write. Um, just just chain smoking all day and mad at the world, and you know, uh, And it says in one point of the book that her idea of a job was stuffing envelopes and trying to enter like lotteries and sweepstakes. I I knew someone who did that. So when I added that in there, that was, that was a real detail from uh, someone I knew, someone I actually liked, but someone that literally would sit around all day, like it's stuff like a hundred envelopes a day and send them off and they would win stuff all the time. But like, in the book says, I don't know if she blew more on postage than she did one in a refrigerator every other year. So yeah. uh, So family, Yeah, I'm lucky to have a great family, but uh, I've definitely pulled from experiences of of things people have told me about their own family. So I, I feel like that most of that's pretty authentic in the book.
0: At the beginning of our conversation, I made mention of how crime fiction stories can introduce readers to different people and places. But I should also mention that those different places can have many of the same problems as your own hometown. In Flint Creek, it's easy to blame the other, whether it's a Greek or a Mexican immigrant or someone that's a little bit different. So different locations and different population densities. I live in a huge city. Um, same as it ever were, prejudices, though. You know, the, the same, um, you know, as as the demographics of the country change, the reactions are sort of startlingly similar, regardless of where you are. And I think you did a really good job without it slipping into caricature, uh, showing that.
1: Yeah. I I didn't want to, I wanted to paint it as accurate as I could without, you know, going overboard or, um, or making that just the issue, every page of the book. I I did want to put tiny brushstrokes throughout that just let you know, like, it's not always comfortable for everybody in Flint Creek. You know, if you, if you, if you look a certain way, uh, speak a certain way, skin's a certain color, or even, even you know, financially, uh, you know, if there's just something that doesn't line up with the power center of the town, you know, uh, you don't feel welcome, whether that's true or not, you know, you don't feel welcome. And, and I think a lot of people still feel that. And, and it's not just that you're right, it's not just in small towns. And it could be one way, uh, a mile down the street, it could be a totally different way a mile away. I think it it just depends on what people grew up around. And some of it is hatred and and evil. And some of it's just ignorance, especially with younger people. They don't they they grew up a certain way around certain people so that they don't know what to think about, you know, as as in the book said, we're we're a few outsiders. That's what you know, Lucy says about Charlie and and Hudson. Um, and they are kind of outsiders in their own way. You know, Charlie's from out of town. Lucy, you know, she's her family is originally from Mexico and then Hudson has moved away and come back. So, you know, they all have that little bit of, you know, being uncomfortable being in Flint Creek uh, for different reasons.
0: And I'm going to skirt around, you talked about sort of the powers that be. So I want to, I am going to skirt around that group of men. And I, th- I found it interesting that they were men, um, no women allowed uh, yeah. called the Boar Club. And you'll have to read the book to sort of get the, get the gist of that. But I also mentioned and I touched on um, uh, social media, social media, uh, the YouTube, the you know, nothing nothing happens anymore that isn't recorded by somebody. And right. that is something that, interestingly, Lucy, the young uh, schoolgirl, I mean, she's, she's not even uh, chronologically an adult. She's a teenager. And she is so savvy. That she's able to sort of not sort of, she's able to move the investigation further and help blow the lid off. And I thought that was also really well done because you you don't make her a Nancy Drew. She she definitely has her moments and they're not
1: Yeah, absolutely. She has
0: a she has a temper.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. So with, with, you know, like you said at the beginning about the YouTube, um, Hudson was caught on video, you know, so there was a post fight brawl. He didn't throw the first punch, but he is the pro boxer. So in the video, when he turns around and hits a guy, he knocks him clear out of the ring and onto a stretcher pretty much, you know, he's going to take flack for that because man, I can't believe that pro boxer, he just lost his cool like that. Um, you know, and you don't get context with it when you're just clicking on YouTube. You don't know what happened before the fight, how it escalated. So you just kind of make your own judgment. And I felt like he was kind of a victim of that. And then Lucy, on the other hand, you know, she uses tries to use Instagram to her advantage because she knows the younger generation. You know, if I put this out there about my missing brother or, or, you know, the things her family's going through, maybe I'll get some help. So yeah, you get to see, uh, I think a pretty accurate dynamic, um, People can use internet for good, and obviously they can use it for bad, and it can ruin you. It could also help you. So, yeah. Well, it's I sort of a, on both of those.
0: It's sort of a beautiful crowdsourcing moment. That's how. Yeah, I for sure. It. Thank you. Um, I'm I'm in awe of writers with full time jobs, full time day jobs. <laughs> uh, so, not to mention full time day jobs and families. You mentioned you have two young children, and I mean mm-hmm. young. I always want to ask, how do you structure your time? Now, I should mention your teaching list. So words are not foreign to you at all. You work with words all day, but sometimes, actually, sometimes my cousin once said to me, you know, if you want to write a book, the last thing you should do is work with words during the day. <laughs>
1: it's,
0: it's, it's really a busman's holiday. Uh, so how do, but how do you structure your time to write? And it, And it's not just writing, you know, it's, it's, things that you've discussed on your, on Twitter, I follow you on Twitter. It's finding an agent and slapping the manuscript into shape. And I use that term very, you know, I'm using that precisely (laughs) because that's what you do. You just slap that puppy back forth and sideways. You find, you know, once you get the the agent, finding the publisher, and now for writers, it's becoming a social media presence. So how do you approach the process? How do you keep your sanity, Scott? Black.
1: Oh Lord, that, that is a great question because I do teach English full-time and I also teach part-time English at the college level. And, and who, who you said, someone made a comment about that. Like stay away from words is your day job. My cousin. You're be a writer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So your cousin is, is pretty dead on with this because, you know, I'm not a very structured person. So I try to, to, I try to write at night. Uh, but sometimes, especially after teaching or if I'm teaching, I'm teaching two different novels during the day, it's tough because I've used all of my energy with that. And uh, and sometimes I'm teaching stuff I don't necessarily love. <laughs> so, you know, that'll really drain you. So, it, yeah, it's it's very, very difficult. And then so now it's at the point where I'm trying to write a second book um, and then launch my career with this debut and, and keep a social media presence um, without taking away time from my family without being busy at the dinner table. Cause we don't, we don't like bring our devices to the dinner table. That's kind of like a family rule that even before we had kids, we were good about. So yeah, it's uh, it's hoping when the babies go to bed at night uh, you know, after nine o'clock, I still have the, the brain power to do something and uh, in the summer it's a little better, but at the same time, if you got, you know, my daughter's two, my son's one, so there's, there's not much uh, downtime during the day. <laughs> I mean, you know, and if they take a nap at the same time, there's a good chance, you know, that I'm joining them for that because <laughs> uh, I'm worn out. So, yeah, I think, um, I think you do need, you know, you need the time to step away from stuff sometimes too. Cause if you, when you are slapping a manuscript into, into place, um, into shape, I should say, um, yeah, that's, that's a tough process. And, uh, the more you force it, the more frustrated you get. Uh, you know, I found myself at that place a couple times this week. Um, so, yeah, it, I guess it's all about balance, and uh, if you can find it, and uh, and just trusting that the words will come when when you're ready. Um, and sometimes I'll I'll steal five minutes away between classes and write something down because I'm not I'm not a planner. But if an idea comes up, I have to get it down really quickly. So, yeah it's very tough it's very it's very difficult but I'm committed to it and this is one I want I want to do for a living so uh, I've, I've committed you know myself to that
0: you touched on this uh, are we leaving Flint Creek in your next book and what what can you tell us about uh, where it's at and how how slap happy it is
1: Lord um, as of today I think I, I was like a hundred pages in so that's roughly 25,000 words um, Leaving Flint Creek, I had actually sat down and tried to write uh, a sequel, but I've uh, I've decided against that for, for various reasons. I felt like I was I was trying to take advantage of the moment, you know, like I'm going to ride this momentum. But really, when I got into it, uh, the story wasn't, you know, I didn't have the story I wanted. So I'm not going to do a disservice to those characters I love, unless something comes along later that I just have to write. Um, so I've switched to an unrelated, uh, sequel in another similar, you know, geographic, uh, town, you know, I'm going to give it a different name just cause it's not Flint Creek anymore. Um, but I didn't get a two book deal. So I don't have that pressure on me. Like, Hey, Scott, you have to write this in eight months. Cause I'd be like, no, that's not happening. Cause I can't, I can't force words out like that. But, um, yeah, this is a book. And uh, I'm, I'm going to say it out loud so it'll come true. So I, I want this to be able to uh, to sell one day and something that I'll be proud of if I can finish. But anyway, it's about a teacher narrator, an English teacher. All right. So I'm writing this one in first person as well, because that's all I write. It's all I can write, at least that I know of. Um, uh, he and his wife are going through some uh, fertility issues, um, which can be very expensive. So out of desperation when they're, they're about to start in vitro, which is, you know, if you know anything about that, you've had, you know, anybody that's gone through it, you know, each round of that could be 10 to 20 grand at least. And some people have to go through multiple rounds to have a successful, if they do have a successful uh, pregnancy. So when he's under that pressure, he kind of loses his job and takes another side job that kind of uh, he finds out pretty soon um, it's tied into some things that might be a little bit borderline illegal So at that point, he's got to decide whether he's going to finish out the job or kind of like go back to his normal life because, you know, he is desperate for money. I like to bring money desperation into my novels because it can make people do some stuff that they normally wouldn't do. So it touches on, you know, something that guys typically don't write about fertility issues. But it also has a teacher narrator, but it's also a crime novel, um, small town, you know, Southern North Carolina. So. I want it to be like a little bit literary, a little bit crime fiction, rural fiction, um, sort of like what I did with my first novel, but um, a different feel to it. Um, so we'll see if I can pull this off. Uh, it's I, I've been slapping it pretty hard this week, but it's not cooperating, but uh, I think if I could do it, it's something I'm going to be very proud of. And I think it will resonate with a lot of people that have gone through similar struggles.
0: So this is, I think one of the things that writers encounter Uh they write the book. They, you know, everything is a struggle. Everything is a struggle Mm -hmm. with writing from getting the words out from your head through your fingers. However, whether you write longhand or you write on your, you know, on the computer or whatever, uh, finding an agent, getting it published, getting it sold, getting it out there. And then you have to publicize the book. Like you have to do Mm -hmm. things like this. You have to sit and talk to people you don't know. I've, I've (laughs) seen your, your schedule, um, you have a nice schedule for uh in in bookstore signings, which is mm-hmm. nice and nice that your book is coming out in 2022 didn't come out in 2020 or 2020
1: amen to that Boy. i think that was
0: very very hard on especially debut writers
1: absolutely um
0: and yeah i mean if you're michael connelly and you publish a book and not taking anything away from mike you know if, if you if you publish something, people are going to buy it. But when you're a debut author, you want you you want to be at the bookstore. You want to talk to people. You want to talk to the booksellers who are going to hand sell your book. That's absolutely incredibly important. So all of this is has it been a pleasant surprise, or you're going like, oh my god, I can't do this anymore.
1: Um, I uh, so I'm in an interesting situation having kids at home, right? Young ones. Uh, and also, it's releasing like the day before the last day of school, so that's kind of like some serendipity there. That that was great for me because so it was, if it released in February, it'd have been tougher to pull events off. So I do have several uh, events scheduled in person. Uh, I'm excited about them. Uh, my closest writing friend, he he published April seventh, twenty twenty. So think about that. Yeah. His his publisher his publisher canceled all of his events, wouldn't reschedule them, then they dropped him. Um, and it wasn't, none of it was his fault. He drew, he wrote one of the best books I read that year, but um, it was tough on him. It was very tough. Um, and I'm, I feel pretty blessed that I I do get to get out and meet some people. And I have, I've already gone to a couple of events and meet um, and met some people and I met some booksellers in person. I went to a SEBA event, which is the Southern Independent Booksellers Alliance. Um, Wiley Cash kind of <laughs> stuck me into that event and I met some awesome booksellers. and. And I met several that have contacted me since and said, yeah, we have we've ordered a case of your books, you know, in other states. So that that was awesome. And so I'm sending them all like autographed book plates and bookmarks and stuff because, you know, I really appreciate, you know, what they're doing. And then and then jumping on podcast um, has been great. And I, I do. I love talking writing. So, you know, this is this is this stuff's right up my alley. I'm not an introvert at all, uh, not online, not in person, um, not as a teacher. Um, so I really do enjoy this and I appreciate it so much and uh, I worked so hard so I could have this opportunity so I'm, I'm trying to take advantage the best I can and i haven't I've only had to tell one person no just because it was a scheduling thing but yeah I not don't, I don't like to tell people no when uh, when I have a good opportunity for sure
0: well I do appreciate your time and it is a remarkable book and uh, as I said it it, it it just took me to locations I mean I've, I've read essay. Crosby and I've read David Joy and I've read Wiley Cash and I've read uh, David Woodhall and I've read, you know, I, I've read quite a few writers who write uh, in your neck of the woods as it were. Yeah. And and yours is just, as you mentioned, it's just unique. It's just, it's not in the mountains of North Carolina and it's not uh, at the, it's not in Wilmington It's right smack down in the middle of the state. And it was was just a great experience. So I want to thank you for writing it. And I hope it does really well. And I'm really looking forward to your next book.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, Uh, like we said earlier, location was important for me. And and I don't feel like there's a few nonfiction writers around me, uh, but I don't feel like within 20 miles of here, there's many fiction writers. Um, And I'm not in a small town. I'm I'm right outside of Greensboro, Winston-Salem. I feel like there's a lot of poets around nonfiction writers. But I was like, uh, some days I feel like this area needed a fiction writer and I've worked hard to become that in, in some degree. So, um, yeah, I've enjoyed it. And then, uh, yeah, sa he's, he's not that far from me. He's in Virginia. Um, I'm friends with him. I met him at a reading before he was, uh, you know, about six or seven months before Black Top wasteland dropped. So I knew him before he was, uh, <laughs> before he just absolutely exploded. And then, um, and then Wiley, I studied under him for two years and we talked quite a bit. So, uh, yeah, I love what they do. I love what David Joy does and Ron Rash and, um, and all these guys. But I feel like I did something different. And, uh, and I take a lot of pride in that.
0: Well, thanks again for talking to us. And best of luck with the book. And hopefully, my fingers are crossed, we talk in the next couple of years.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me on.